going to read a little, uh, you know, start with the beginning of the chapter, get a, remind us of the context of what's going to be going on here. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews went persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. For without it, we would have no knowledge of you aside from that which declares your visible qualities in the heavens and in the earth that you have made. We would not know of your mercy. We would not know of your compassion. We would not know who Jesus really was, only who he appeared to be. And so, Father, I ask that you, by your Spirit, would open our eyes through this text to help us see afresh, or perhaps even for the first time, who Jesus really is. That you would remove the obstacles that are in our hearts. Because indeed, this is a message that uh, the flesh has a hard time accepting. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Oftentimes, married couples will realize in the midst of a fight that the fight that they're having is not really what they're fighting about. There's something deeper going on. There's something else that's really at work. That this, They're really just operating on the surface level in their discussion or disagreement with one another. That there's a more profound issue that's at play in the, in the context of that marriage argument. It's not just marriage. Anytime you have an argument, perhaps, uh, there's often something at work under the surface that goes unseen 
unless someone is wise enough to drag it out from the dark and into the light. The debates and discussions and disagreements that Jesus has with the Pharisees are like that. It's easy just to fight up on this level on the surface, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. But what this text is brings us back down to what lurks below. What's the real issue that's the problem here? Whether or not they agreed on the Sabbath doesn't matter if they don't agree on this deeper matter. So arguments, disagreements can also uh, let us know that there's a larger debate. And this particular debate about the Sabbath brings us, it brings us into questions of grace and law. It brings us into questions of the divinity of Jesus. We need to pay attention. We need to go deeper. Now, the place we're going to end is with this big idea that Jesus is just like the Father. It's a very simple concept, and yet it's hard for people to grasp in the, in the real life world, so to speak. First aspect of of this process, this, these deeper debates I want to touch on, is that God's grace leads to godliness. Let's recap for a second. As I read, Jesus was at the temple. There he heals a paralyzed man who carries, picks up his bed in obedience to Jesus and begins to carry his bed in obedience to Jesus. And this man was then questioned by the Jewish leaders because, of course, from their perspective, he was doing work on the Sabbath. He was not sure who healed him when he was questioned. It seemed like that was the end of it. But later, we see, John reminds us, or tells us, at some undetermined point in time, Jesus encounters this man that he healed in the temple yet again. Now, we're not sure, it could have been the next day, it could have been the next week, we're not sure. Most likely it was during that same festival. Jesus sees that the man is back at the temple. We're not sure what he's doing. Perhaps he's like many people who have undergone such a life-changing transformation, uh, you know, back to what he used to do. Maybe he was there begging at the temple, not sure what to do with himself, because in 38 years of being an invalid, did he have a trade? Not likely. So, it's something to think about. What we do know is that Jesus reminds him, look, behold, see, pay attention, you are well. He's pointing this man back to God's uh, physical mercy upon him. That he who was once an invalid, who was unable to care for himself, who had to lay by the pool and couldn't even get into the pool without the help of another, that he has been physically restored We don't know about his spiritual state at this, okay? We do know that Jesus healed him physically. We don't know if Jesus healed him spiritually in terms of his soul. Because he can heal someone's body, but not necessarily deal with the problems of their heart. Just as Jesus can deal with someone's heart and not deal with the problems of their body. Johnny Erickson Tata, for instance. It was after her accident that paralyzed her that she came to faith in Christ. And so he gave her a new heart, but he did not heal her physical body. So this man may have a new body, so to speak, a healthy body, but not 
a healthy heart, spiritually. He might be like those people we read about in that rather strange passage in Matthew, is it Matthew 12? When the man is swept clean of the demon, but he doesn't feel, he's not filled with the Spirit, and so the demons come back. That's a really bizarre passage. Anyone think that's a really strange passage? Okay, good. Maybe one day I'll preach on that. Maybe then we'll all understand this passage. But I think it does have a lot to do with what I'm about to say. Jesus is not just concerned about the man's physical life, he's also concerned about his spiritual life. And he issues this man a very stern warning as a result. Sin, no more. Yeah, it's a command. Yeah, it's present tense, which probably implies it should be an ongoing sort of thing. Sin, no more. In other words, since now you can walk, you should walk the right path with God. The ability to walk means that you can walk in a good direction or you can walk in a bad direction. So he's telling this man, spiritually, to walk in a good direction. Now, as I woke up at five in the morning and was pondering this text, one of the things that struck me is that Jesus doesn't say what particular sin. This could be an aspect of God's mercy to him and not outing him, so to speak, in front of everyone who's around him by declaring the, any particular sins this man needs to flee. Aren't you grateful sometimes that Jesus does not reveal all of your sins to everybody you know? That there are many sins that uh, are, are safe, so to speak, in that Jesus knows them, Jesus has forgiven them, and Jesus doesn't spread the news to everybody else because Man, if everyone knew the things in my heart, I couldn't show my face sometimes, I think. Is it a particular sin that's in mind here, or is, or is this just a, in a general to sin no more? It's hard to grasp. John 8 is going to be a similar sort of thing when we get there. The woman who was caught in adultery. I condemn you not, but he does say, go and sin no more. There's a strong call here for there to be a definitive break with sin in the life of a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly, what is in mind here is a break with habitual sin. That there are the practices in our life that need to start changing by the grace of God. And so we have to recognize something here from this text, I believe. <clears throat> that pardoning grace, while distinct from purifying grace, is not separate from purifying grace. What do I mean? The same Jesus who gives you pardoning grace also gives you purifying grace. Both. Not one or the other. Both. There is no one to whom he will only give pardoning grace, but not purifying grace. He doesn't want us to merely be forgiven, but he wants to make us holy. That's important for us to remember. Because sometimes we can get so caught up in the good news of 
you know, this man, his physical healing, or in us, our pardon from sin. We can get so caught up in that that we can kind of forget that, hey, there's more to life that happens after this. Gives both. Well, I was on vacation. I was spending some time with my brother-in-law, and so we were sitting outside an establishment, enjoying a little meal. And one of his friends who used to work for him showed up. And he sat down, we were talking for a while, and uh, this man, from his perspective, had tried to do things the quote-unquote right way. He had gotten married. Before uh, he and his wife got married, they didn't have any sex. They waited until the marriage night, okay, trying to do this the right way. They, They were going to church, and then a year ago, his wife left him, out of the blue, from his perspective anyway. And so on the one hand, he talks about, I love Christ, I love Christ, I love Christ. But on the other hand, he loved sex. And so not being married anymore, he was enjoying the bachelor lifestyle of casual sex. I don't know this guy. And I know my brother-in-law has talked with him about this a few times. And here I am. Now he knows I'm a pastor. I've been outed. I've got to say something to him. And I forgot about this passage. But I did go to later on in John. And I said, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And you need to hear that. We all fall into sin. But as I told him, are you complacent in your sin? Are you happy to be there? Or does it frustrate you that you've done it? That's a significant difference. This man apparently was one who was complacent in his sin, and Jesus is telling him to be disturbed by his sin. That's part of why I have that quote from J.C. Ryle in the Order of Worship for your reflection. If you and God, I can't remember it word for word, but if you and God are to be friends, you and your sin cannot. What other passages remind us of this reality? I thought of two. There are so many more, but I'll put two for you. Romans 6, Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so Paul reminds them that there was a time in their life when they were enslaved to sin and they gave their bodies over to the pursuit of sin. And he says now you need to be slave of something different. Not a slave of sin, a slave to righteousness or a servant of righteousness. Give those same parts of your body that you used to use for sin over to righteousness. John 3, uh, sorry, 1 John 3. That little one at the beginning is very important. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those are frightening words from the apostle of love, aren't they? Again, it's that radical break. It's not that you never sin, but that you're in that process of breaking away from the habitual sin that has plagued your life up till this time. 
And so what is sort of being gotten at here is that there is a process that, goes, that takes place. That there is redemption, an act of redemption, the application of redemption, a response of gratitude that then moves into this pursuit of holiness. We see it in the Scriptures. We see it in the Heidelberg Catechism. One of the things I did on vacation this year is read uh, Kevin DeYoung's um, really good introductory commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. And the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism is very thoughtful. Because it deals with the law not before grace, after grace. Because it's, it's understanding the third use of the law as a very profound thing. A very important thing. Yes, the law drives us to Jesus because it reveals our sin, but the law also reveals the life that is pleasing to God. And so the heart that is filled with gratitude for grace pursues the law in grace to bring glory to God. Okay? That's an important thing for us to remember. We are to always pursue the law out of Gratitude for grace in Jesus Christ. Out of faith in Christ and His purifying work for us. In the power of the Spirit. Out of love for Christ. And so these, there are these many motivations that work, but let us not think that, as some think, I've come to Jesus. I'm done with all that. How you live still matters. It matters whether or not you bring glory to God by how you live. It does. It does. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about this. He criticized this idea, this notion of cheap, cheap grace, which receives forgiveness, but does not go to the same Jesus for holiness. And so Jesus, we see in Scripture, is not just forming a forgiven people, but a people who are zealous both for good and for good works. Titus 2 and 3. Paul emphasizes this. I'll just read from Titus 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And all he's doing is he's summarizing what he said in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2, if you want to go back and read those. And so Paul, as well, following the lead of Jesus here, has a stress on holiness that antinomians seem to ignore. And if you don't know what an antinomian is, that means, essentially, it's a theological position that either... We're under grace in such a way that the law has no remaining abiding effect or that they deny the third use of the law as showing us the life that is pleasing to God. That's what an antinomian is. And there are many that think, essentially, <clears throat> I'm saved by Christ and I'm grateful. And I might pursue holiness, but they really don't know how to do that because they don't have an understanding of the law. They've tossed that aside. Jesus says things. I don't know how they can, they can say, 
yes to and be coherent. Jesus says, in order that, okay, sin no more in order that, nothing worse will happen to you. Wow. That's not the friendly, cuddly Jesus that some people hold to. This is a Jesus who's serious. He's serious about sin. He's serious about salvation and righteousness. We're not sure exactly what he means in this. It could be something temporal, meaning something worse than you're being crippled. But most likely, I think it refers to eternally. Condemnation. Damnation. Far worse than being an invalid. Reminds me, it should remind us, that judgment begins with the house of God. It says it right there in 1 Peter 4. He said said this about his his own time. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? of God. The church shakes and the ones who are not rooted to Jesus will fall out because they have no root. Nominal Christians through that shaking process, that purifying process, that earthly judgment process on the church will shake out. Think about Masal for a moment. Those who love Christ, I imagine, have packed their bags and walked away. Or said, it's okay to die. They've taken one of those two options. The nominal Christians are the ones who say, I like my house. Uh, Yeah, Islam sounds good to me. It's being shaken. So the loose pieces fall away. But what really is rooted in Christ will stay. In Christ. In the church. Sometimes the visible church is shaken. The grace that Jesus gives us also calls us to submit to Jesus as Lord. Yeah, I think that was my longest point. Second part I want us to think of more briefly is that evil men resist the Son like they resisted the Father. So Jesus just gave the man a stern warning. What's the first thing you'd do if Jesus warned you? I might think about obeying him. This guy didn't. He goes and he rats out Jesus. He goes running to the religious leaders. I know who healed me now. (laughs) It was Jesus. He didn't want the ire of the religious leaders. He thought it was better to have the ire of Jesus. He turns in Jesus. It's like a mob movie. You know? See. Who will I rather make angry with me? Who, which one? Which, where do I have the best chance of living at this point in time? I'll turn the guys in. He could have kept this knowledge to himself, but he didn't. Now, 
the religious leaders, the Pharisees, what they do, instead of receiving this, this information and thinking about it, considering it, pondering it, possibly humbling themselves over it, they immediately go after Jesus. They, didn't, they ignore the fact that he just healed a guy that they had done nothing to help in 38 years, and they want to get Jesus. The text says they began to persecute Jesus. It means that word just means to run after, to cause someone else to flee, cause someone else to run. And whenever I think of that, I can't help but think of Forrest Gump, the bullies who began to chase Forrest and his friend going, Run, Forrest, run! They're trying to put Jesus to flight. Just as Issa is trying to put those Christians in Masal to flight. They're angry that Jesus keeps showing mercy on the Sabbath. Remember, this is not the only time. For instance, one we didn't talk about last week, uh, but Luke 12. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? In other words, don't you work? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Is not the Sabbath day, in other words, a day for release, a day for mercy? Not in the eyes of the Pharisees. Jesus' habitual mercy, not habitual sin, his habitual mercy, his habitual righteousness, offended them. In a sense, he showed them up. Because they realized he has power, they do not. And you can either submit to that power, or you can fight it. And they chose to fight it. Just as they had, just as they had fought, essentially, the Father. You see, their problem was with the law of God. Jesus was not breaking the law. They're going beyond it. They were breaking, I say, they're accusing Jesus of breaking their own law. When you create your own law, you're resisting the Father, the lawgiver. They're self-deceived. They think they're keeping God's law, but God's law includes the place for mercy, as we saw before I went on vacation. And so, just as there is a holiness that those who struggle with this thing called antinomianism don't want to admit, there's also a freedom that Jesus brings that angry legalists don't want to admit. Jesus makes people on the extremes angry. I always think of Les Miserables. I don't do the play. I'm not a musical guy. But I love a lot of the movie versions of that, of that story from Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo, if I get it correctly. And of course, there, there's this triumphant scene where the priest gives the gold and the silver to Jean Valjean and says that he has been purchased from evil for God. And so what Jean Valjean does is what we talked about in the first part of the sermon. He becomes zealous for good works. He's a transformed man. He, begin, he buys a factory that's going out of business, becomes the benefactor of a whole town. But there's a new inspector in town, Javert. 
And Javert thinks there's something vaguely familiar about this man named Jean Valjean that he can't quite place. And then it comes to him when Jean Valjean rescues a man trapped under a cart. He's seen that strength before in a prisoner. And he realizes that Jean Valjean has violated his parole and begins to hunt him throughout all of France. He's concerned about the parole, but has not seen the goodness that Jean Valjean began to do. Javert is a Pharisee. Refuses to embrace the freedom that Jesus brings people into. After Jesus responds to this charge, they want to kill him. So apparently they had a conversation about this, and it probably was not a pleasant conversation about this. The hatred for Jesus in John's gospel is beginning to grow. So unbelievers who really read the Bible often are angry with the Jesus they find, because he's not the Jesus they want to find. Thirdly, Jesus works because the Father works. And so when the the critics show up and Jesus engages with them, he responds to them in an amazing way that he knew would rile them. Because, as it said at the end of John 2, he knows what's in man. He says, my Father is working until now. When Jews talked about God, they would often say, our father, meaning that he was the father of Israel. Jesus is talking about my father, not as the father of Israel, but his personal father. You catch that difference? That was offensive to them. That was outside their categories, outside their understanding outside what they believed based on the Old Covenant. His father was working. Wait a minute. On the seventh day, the father rested. Genesis 2, right? They might say. Yes. He ceased from his work of creation. But that does not mean that God went on a siesta for a day. It does not mean that God took a big old nap, although you may take a nap today. Don't worry. Francis Turton, I think, is helpful. God, after finishing the creation of things, ceased from the creation of new species. Okay? So he's not making more trees, he's not making more fish, he's not making more animals, that kind of stuff. All right? and determined that this should be set apart for the rest of man afterward in memory of the thing, his ceasing from his work of creation. But, see, I love how the Westminster Confession, when it talks about the decrees of God, breaks them up into two, his decrees of creation and his decrees of providence. Creation has ended. God's resting from creation, but God cannot rest from his works of providence. I I plundered the local library 
up in uh, North Creek, New York. They have a bunch of free books, the books that nobody wants. And so I'm looking for novels, and I came across a little book. I forgot to bring it home with me, The Laws of Thermodynamics. I can. <laughs> There's a few of you who love the laws of thermodynamics, and I'm one of the. I I don't know enough about the laws of thermodynamics, but I understand enough about the laws of entropy to know that if something is to remain functioning, it needs a continual input of energy. That if there's no longer any energy, it begins to fall apart. Just look at a house. If no one lives in a house, it starts to fall apart. It's not just the termites. It falls apart. If God does not continually uphold and maintain the universe by his works of providence, it will fall apart. It will cease to exist. Jesus says that as my Father is working until now, and I am working, Jesus is just like his Father. He follows in his footsteps. He follows his example. He follows his works. And precisely because he is the perfect resemblance of the Father, he upholds everything together with his power. Colossians chapter 1, And he is before all things, and in him Christ all things hold together. We can talk about quarks, and we can talk about all of those other subatomic particles that, that some people understand and I don't. But I understand the bigger picture. That Jesus uses those to hold things together. But he's the one who holds them together. Hebrews chapter 1, same thing. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. When it all wants to fall apart, He's the one that's keeping it all together. Not a house, not a planet, not a solar system, not a galaxy. How many galaxies are there? There's billions of stars in the universe. He holds them all together by the power of His Word. That's one powerful God to hold all that together. When a star goes supernova, it's only by His will that it goes supernova. It's not just the sparrows that fall in the field. It's the stars that go supernova. It's according to the will of God. Because He has stopped holding that particular thing together that it may go... There's nothing that does not need Him to keep it together. And so... As we think about what Jesus is saying here, we recognize that Sabbath rest is not idleness for God, and therefore it is not necessarily idleness for us. The Father and the Son both worked mercy on the Sabbath. Now these Jewish leaders understood, and that's what got them so mad. Because not only did they charge Jesus with Sabbath breaking, but now they, they add to it, blasphemy. Because they say, He's making himself 
equal with God. They understood exactly what he was saying. The problem was they didn't believe it. They're right in what understanding what he said. They're wrong in not believing it. They're just like the demons it says in James 2. They know there's one God. They have proper knowledge. But they didn't trust that God. So it's, while it's important for us to have proper knowledge, we also have to remember that that knowledge requires trust. He's not just a good teacher. If, he is the same, if he's making himself equal with God, that means that Jesus has the same nature as God and that Jesus has the same status as God. He does. This leads us, in, obviously, into C.S. Lewis's famous question. Is Jesus a liar? Was he a liar when he said that uh, you know, my father was working until now and I am working? Is he lying when he says that? Is he a lunatic? Meaning, is he deceived? Is he crazy? Is he a paranoid schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur when he thinks these things? Or is he speaking the truth and therefore is Lord? But Jesus is a good teacher, people. They have no place to hide. They want to because Jesus says a lot of things that they, they kind of resonate with. Obviously, there's some things Jesus says that they don't really resonate with, but they forget about those. They're sort of like Jonathan, uh, Thomas Jefferson cutting the miracles out of the Bible, you know. Uh, let's get rid of this hard saying of Jesus. Oh, let's get rid of this hard saying of Jesus. We want the, the good teacher, Jesus. We can't handle Jesus in those terms. We have to accept him for who he says he is or reject him for who he says he is. There's no middle ground between those two positions. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. They treated Jesus as a liar. And eventually they put him to death for his supposed lies. A death that would give life to so many. So this is not a Jesus that we can tame or domesticate. This Jesus requires worship. This Jesus requires obedience. So we see that what started as a relatively minor disagreement, at least from our perspective, over the Sabbath, led us into a deeper, more important set of disagreements. The disagreement over the Sabbath brought Jesus and the Pharisees into a far deeper disagreement about who Jesus really is. This deeper one is the one that you have to get right. There is no room for disagreement here. Now there, might, there is room for disagreement on how to celebrate the Sabbath. But we can't disagree when it comes to the fact that Jesus is equal with the Father. They are both God in nature. They are both equal in status. Together with the Spirit, they are to, to be worshipped and glorified. And so, does your faith in this Jesus compel you 
to grow in grace and to grow in righteousness out of gratitude for the incredible salvation that he has wrought for you? Or is this a Jesus that merely piques your intellectual curiosity? Or is a placebo for your fears? Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us sometimes to recognize what John is doing in this gospel. But he's driving us somewhere. He's helping us to see that there's only two realities. We can either be a disciple or essentially a Pharisee. Be at work in us because of our original sin. Even though we might be regenerate, there's still a little Pharisee in us. There's still a part of us that struggles with what Jesus says. And so we ask that your Spirit would deal tenderly with us, exposing the places where our thinking needs to be brought in line with Scripture. And not just our thinking, but our behavior, our lifestyle. Continue to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, that we might believe what he believed, and that we may live in a way that he lived. We ask this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.